Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, Professor of History at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Grand strategy is like pornography, hard to define, but most people claim to be able to recognize it when they see it. And discussions about either topic can get quite heated, especially among professionals. Not coincidentally, academic programs in grand strategy have proliferated of late as the United States faces a more complicated global chessboard. From the granddaddy of them all at Yale to newer programs across the fruited plain. A general awareness that grand strategy is a good thing to have and a hard thing to understand has inspired a range of books, more than 3,000 currently available on Amazon, on the presence or absence of American grand strategy, on the historical grand strategies of the Roman or Habsburg empires, on contemporary China, or on the very concept in theory and practice. Here at the Army War College, we emphasize our role as training future leaders who will assume positions at the strategic level. Strategy is in the very name of my department and informs pretty much every course we teach. So we have a vested interest in encouraging and understanding the conversation about grand strategies, meanings, and uses, especially for the United States. For that reason, we are delighted to welcome into our virtual studio, Dr. Christopher McKnight-Nichols and Dr. Andrew Preston, who along with Dr. Elizabeth Borgwart have edited a fascinating new essay collection, Rethinking American Grand Strategy from Oxford University Press, in which they have gathered nearly two dozen leading scholars to offer their perspectives on aspects of American grand strategy since the founding era. Christopher McKnight-Nichols is Director of the Center for the Humanities and Associate Professor of History at Oregon State University and author of multiple books, especially Promise and Peril, America at the Dawn of a Global Age, while Andrew Preston is Professor of History at the University of Cambridge. His most recent book is American Foreign Relations, A Very Short Introduction. Welcome to A Better Peace, Chris Nichols and Andrew Preston. Thanks, Ron. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. You bet. So, so gentlemen, how did this book come to be in the size and shape that it has emerged as a collection? Well, it, it, it has an interesting beginning um, because Elizabeth Borgort uh, and I had conversations many years ago about grand strategy and how we both learned a lot from grand strategy, but, um, and, and we both appreciated uh, and learned from uh, military history and strategic history. But we thought there was room to explore grand strategy in a variety of ways, but then we didn't really do anything with that idea for a while. And then we were having a conversation with, I think this is right, Chris, you can correct me uh, if I'm wrong, but we had a conversation with Chris at a conference where we talked about grand strategy and we thought, you know, there's scope to sort of reimagine grand strategy, to, to broaden it out, to make it more capacious. And uh, Chris then came on board and really developed the idea and, and took it forward and then hosted a major conference at Oregon State where we brought a lot of the authors to the book 
um, and had a conference where we debated grant strategy. What is it? What could it be? How can we expand it without then losing its coherence? And from that conference, um, uh, a book a book was born. Is that more or less right, Chris? <laughs> so, Andrew, yeah, I think that's a good uh, recapitulation of the history of how we got started here. For me, um, I began puzzling over questions of grand strategy in graduate school, and I was fascinated by how historical actors um, used the term and thought about it, um, and then also how historians, political scientists, and other scholars have kind of uh, read it back into the history, seeing grand strategy of the Roman Empire, the Ottoman Empire, or uh, you know British grand strategy in World War One. Um, so you know. In thinking about those questions in the historical record, in the policymakers' own voices, um, you know, I was perplexed by uh, whether or not historical actors were developing grand strategies, what counted as that, how it should be defined. Um, and so it was serendipitous that, that I ran into you and, and Liz, and we, we started thinking about this. And, and from my perspective, one of the real strengths of the volume and, and our approach is that you know, so many of the books that Ron was just describing um, are, are single authored or, or have two authors. We brought together you know, several dozen uh, serious scholars, some of whom don't identify at all as doing grand strategy or studying grand strategy, and some are very much well-known in the kind of canon of those who, who write and think about it. And that was a great advantage for us in trying to figure out how to define this vague and slippery term grand strategy, uh, figure out some of its limits as well as its strengths in studying the historical record, perhaps even in projecting possible uh, future paths for grand strategy. So, you know, I think uh, we, we came together, the, the project came out of a lot of historians in particular and thinkers, Andrew, Liz and I, in conversation. Um, and uh, and for many of us, the, the core set of questions here about grand strategy is, you know, who and what counts? Mm -hmm. um, and, and how do we think about the people in the historical record who were doing grand strategy, regardless of whether or not they thought they were doing grand strategy. And perhaps interestingly for us, you know, uh, especially for those who don't think they're doing grand strategy, right? Because it's a right. self-aggrandizing kind of project. Uh, if you project out your grand strategy as Kenan-esque, uh, say in the Clinton administration, or we'll, we'll probably be talking about that. Um, that's something that all US presidential administrations want, a grand strategy that can be recognized as such. Yeah. Well, and, and that's where we get into this interesting question that <clears throat> grand strategy is often the kind of thing that a critic of this or that administration's policy will be on television and will sit back and say, well, the problem here is that we don't have we don't have a sense of what grand strategy is at work. And so what is grand strategy? Did you go into this conversation when you when you started bringing people together? Did you go in with a working definition? And did you find that there were significant sort of differences in approach that resulted from different definitions of the term? It doesn't matter. In other words, if I call grand strategy one thing, does that shape the way I actually discuss it? I think it's fair to say that we went into the project with, at least at the beginning, with a fairly conventional view of what grand strategy is. And I think that conventional view has a lot going for it. It's still the view that I think is more or less true to varying to varying degrees, but um, you know if we think of strategy as applying means to achieve an end, and that end that objective is in the near term or the medium term, grand strategy is about applying um, a wide variety of means to securing an objective that is further off in the future, that is maybe five years, ten years down the road. It's not just about winning the battle or winning even the war, but about shaping the peace that follows the war. That's the kind of um, view of grand strategy that I've held uh, for a long time, and it's—I it, I think, as you you know, 
as you said, Ron, earlier, that um, there's no easy way to define it. But like pornography, we know it when we see it. But I think that's a definition that a lot of people could could agree upon, um, at least as a starting point. And that's what we took it. We took it as a starting point. And from there, we just told our contributors, um, you know, basically, you don't have to stick to that definition. Um, but, um, you know, take that definition and then go somewhere with your topic and sort of explore grant strategy and how it could be more capacious. Now we do have contributors like Hal Brands and others who are extremely familiar, who have written with grant strategy, who have written a lot on grant strategy and have written about it, not just as a topic, but as a theory, as a method. Um, and so they, they came at it from one perspective, but there are a lot of contributors, as Chris said, who didn't think of themselves as grand strategists or as historians of grand strategy or as military historians. And we wanted them still to take this concept and then apply something completely out of left field, at least in a grand strategic sense, and, and see where we got. And one of the concerns is that you could have this big sort of white hot mess um, and nobody really knows what to do with it. And, you know, there were times where we thought, gosh, how are we going to actually bring order out of this chaos? Um, I think we did in the end, uh, and and I think the book kind of speaks for itself in that sense. It is very capacious, it is very broad, but there is a kind of uh, coherence, I would say, to it in trying to broaden out this this idea, this this notion of what grant strategy is. But what we don't do is we don't try and offer a sort of replacement definition. We don't want to say this is what grant strategy is, and this is what everyone should think grant strategy is, and work from there. We the whole point of the book is to be capacious, is to be open minded, and really to open up people maybe to new ways of thinking about grant strategy. Well, and, and let me, uh, a question that, come, that came to mind uh, based on uh, discussions before I even got this book into my hands was since you since the focus is about thinking and rethinking American grant strategy, um, and it's something that we wrestle with in our courses too, has the United States um, ever had a grant strategy? Um, or has it had grand strategies and what kinds, you know, how do we figure out the contours of a grand strategy? Like when do we decide that there, yes, that was a grand strategy and this is when it ended, or this is when that grand strategy changed to something else. Chris, yeah, go ahead. I, uh, so let me, uh, first let me dive back into definitions for a second, because I think that'll be illuminating about, you know, um, what counts as grand strategy and has the U.S. had them. So, you know, one of the things that Andrew and I and Liz and all of our contributors struggled with, but Andrew and I in drafting the introduction, um, we thought a lot about some of the theories of grand strategy that don't bear resemblance to the world that we live in today. And that's part of our de definition, in fact, or the core observation that comes early in the introduction. They don't bear resemblance to the world we live in today. What good are they? Right. So definitions or grand strategies that singularly focus on military power and hard power, you know, uh, the people you're training in your classes and your, the, the scholars who we admire, the historical actors who we think um, are, are fitting a, a, the term grand strategy or grand strategists. You know, most of them are thinking about public health. They're thinking about race, the environment, you know. Uh, questions of gender. Uh, you know, if you're thinking about the recent, you know, Afghanistan withdrawal and chaos, that's centered as much about questions of women and gender and sexuality um, as anything else, right? And so how can you talk about hard power or occupation without considering those things? Um, that's that's a has to be a piece of how grand strategy is constructed by scholars and and because it's a piece of the world that we live in today and that we can find in the historical record. So like, I think you have to consider that, that those sets of and that's a core observation that informs a lot of the chapters in the book, even some of the most traditional ones. So, you know, 
Um, so that's one piece of it. Another piece of thinking about, so what is grand strategy is that strategy and grand strategy begin with kind of intelligence and assessments. They're built on bedrock assumptions. You know, you can interrogate those. You can see them in historical actors. We can see them in the present. You know, we can see it in the interim Biden security strategy. Um, and then we can assess whether or not that's been effective or whether or not those core principles play out in particular policies, you know, and, and but they're also as much about assumptions about the world and the forces that are shaping it. And there you get into some of the other other elements. And you can see this way back in, you know, throughout the theorists who talk about this, Clausewitz and others, but they're really cognizant of the forces that are shaping, you know, military strategy and shaping the peace, as, as Andrew said. So, you know, for instance, um, the archetypal grand strategy, getting back to your core question in U.S. history, is canon and containment. It has to be. It's 1947. You know, it's ideas that become sort of the the basis of what we think of as Truman's foreign policies, um, and that those then, as Andrew said, are about matching, you know, uh, means necessarily limited means to long term ends. And and if you want to, you know, the Kennan himself recanted some of those early strategies, and, and there's a lot of ways that we can understand uh, a lack of coherence, in fact, um, to containment. Um, overall, if you think of it as a kind of guiding rubric for U.S. foreign policy throughout the Cold War, it lasts. It's a multi generational set of strategies that are about both the forces shaping the the, the world in which the U.S. is operating um, and the ways in which the core principles of the U.S. can be embodied in foreign policy, right? So alliance structures and humanitarian relief uh, and, you know, capitalism and modernization theory. We could go through a long list, right? Um, so that's if, if, if there is such a thing as grand strategy at the nation state level for the U.S., it's, you have to start with containment as the best example of it. But I would say just I, I can't finish that comment without a caveat. You know, one of the things that we pursued in the book is to say that that isn't where it stops or starts. We really don't want to just go there. There are hidden strategies and strategists. And this is why I loved working with Andrew on the project, because, you know, there is nothing more world shaping than religious missionaries. I found this in my my uh, my studies, my own historical work, and and Andrew's written a brilliant book on on religion, the shaping of war and diplomacy, and you know if most historical literature on grand strategy excludes religion and excludes missionaries, excludes you know some of the most important shaping ideologies in world historical you know terms, um, so you know we we have a chapter in the book by Emily Conrad Crutz, which is great about about missions as uh, mission strategy as uh, grand strategy. Um, but that's the kind of thing that you need to include when you're thinking about something bigger uh, than, than simple military policy, you know, hard power, that sort of thing. And, and I don't mean to reduce the great literature on this subject or the great ways of thinking about it, but just that there's a lot more to it. Well, and, and that's an excellent point, especially when I look around the world today and I see the power of religious ideas, uh, even as a, mobiliz a mobilizer of some hard power, um, but also as a neutralizer of pretty significant hard power in places like Afghanistan. But you get at an interesting point is, yes, uh, you know, Kennan containment is the place to go. We say, did the United States ever have a grand strategy? We have we, we have a, 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 a lesson that's specifically on um, NSC 68 um, as a statement of grand strategy. And you know, I, I keep if if I make may make one other sort of bad jokey analogy here, right? Like the drunk looking for his car keys under the street light, and when somebody tries to help him, they say, "Well, where did you lose the keys?" He said, "Well, I lost them over there, but I'm looking here because the light is better." Um, that one of the reasons that it's easier to think about grand strategy when we get a sense that somebody actually went to the trouble of writing things down and or declaring this is a document, this is a doctrine, this is a policy. 
And especially since your book has so many great examples of the sort of historical perspective, or so let's say the discovery of grand strategy, where perhaps it wasn't articulated, but when we look at it now, we can recognize it as having been a grand strategy. Um, do we as scholars, especially when we're trying to communicate with practitioners, right? Do we run into trouble because we're looking for, we're, we are looking for examples of something, whether people declare it or not, but we also tend to go, we are, we are attracted to declarations. And when we don't see declarations, it can be harder to explain what that grand strategy is. So one of the reasons why we don't talk about missionaries is because, you know, the, the, the initial thought people have is that grand strategy is something that states do. But it turns out, no, they can do other things. And you have, you know, to use another a great example of an essay that you have in here is, um, uh, uh, Elizabeth Bradley and Lauren Taylor's essay on, on PEPFAR, right, about Africa uh, and health, international health as a part of the Bush administration's grand strategy. Is, um, this is a long way to get to this question, but how do we bridge the gap between sort of scholars who identify examples of this grand strategy and practitioners who will say, well, you know, what exactly does a grand strategy look like? How is it formulated? What is its impact? Right? How do we keep that that conversation? How do we grow that conversation? Ron, I think we keep at it by keeping at it. Um, I think as scholars, we just keep offering our perspective to practitioners and hopefully the practitioners, the diplomats and the generals and others uh, actually notice the work because there are two really two different objectives that we're after. There are two, two different purposes. The scholar is there to interrogate and to understand and to, to sort of revise our thinking and to explore um, the unexplored and, and to sort of bring to light some new perspectives, which I think is what we've done uh, in this volume. But the practitioners, um, be they military or diplomatic or in terms of political economy, um, have a different purpose. They need to solve something right there in the here and now. And um, hopefully the practitioners will be able to learn from historical thinking or political science or other sorts of um, reconsiderations of things like grand strategy. And if they're to take away one thing from our book, it's that grand strategy isn't simply military. It's not purely military. It's not purely diplomatic in the narrowest sense that it can include and should include so many other things. You mentioned the, the, the chapter on AIDS on PEPFAR um, by Betsy Bradley and Lauren Taylor. That was, I mean, our timing couldn't have been better, right? Because the book comes out just as COVID is becoming, uh, and the COVID pandemic is becoming really a daily reality for all sorts of people. But we hadn't, of course, anticipated that. We weren't thinking that. And initially, a lot of people thought, wow, a chapter on global public health uh, in a book on grand strategy, that's really out of, you know, that's really out of left field. But of course, now it would, if we were, if you were starting another book or doing another book or another edition of this book, you'd have a whole section on pandemics and a whole section on global public, uh, public health. So I think, I think for practitioners, they have to sort of have this open mindset and to think of things that, that might not be in that traditional wheelhouse that they might think, okay, this is how I'm going to solve this immediate problem in the most familiar way. But it's about thinking outside the box. And I think that's what scholars can bring to the conversation, whether or not it actually ends up being useful to practitioners who, you know, who knows, but at least we have to keep on, keep on trying to bring that to their attention. Makes a lot of sense. Chris, what do you think about this, this issue? Yeah, I'm with you on that. You know, I think Andrew's exactly right. Not a surprise. Uh, <laughs> you know, we've been working on this project a long time. Uh, but, you know, 
So uh, just to, to double down on that, you know, when we first were talking about this in about 2015, 2014, 2015, the seeds of this project, uh, when we gather in 2016 to, to do this, um, get this conference together, and Betsy Bradley, who was then the director of Yale's Grand Strategy Program, who's a, a major public health scholar, right. really encouraged us all to think a lot about public health questions, lo, those many years ago. You know, and she was pointing out not just pandemics, which are, you know, like AIDS and COVID and the influenza pandemic of 1918, which I've written a bunch about, um, but also questions of international governance and, you know, how international structures can bring nation states together to plan for the next uh, crisis, whether it's infectious disease or drought, you know, and, and she's thinking about public health really broadly, landscape, environment, that kind of stuff. So, you know, um, these are the kinds of things that practitioners need to be aware of, right? This is what we can bring to the table. She's talking about this six years before this pandemic, five years before this pandemic, right? And that, those are the kinds of seeds um, to, to, that we would want to plant for practitioners, um, you know, a chapter on reproductive politics and reproductive mm -hmm. rights, you know, and that's been, you can find this in, in Kissinger, you can find this in Nixon, who you wouldn't expect, you know, um, they're thinking about these things. And, and even so, uh, today's, you know, uh, diplomats and, and the future leaders need to be considering these sorts, sorts of questions and topics and themes that, that aren't as obvious. And this, that's one of the things that, you know, if you think about how um, thinking in time, right, so Neustadt and May, this, this great book on the uses of history for decision makers, one of the things that they emphasize in that project is that it's not really about history qua history. It's mm -hmm. about how to, use how to use history. And one of the things that our book you know, and that can be a problem. That can be a challenge because that's about interpretation. You can get that horribly wrong. And a lot of their examples are about, are about uh, the misuse of historical analogies. But for, from my perspective, thinking about our book and rethinking American grand strategy, we want to provide a kind of usable history that is right, that is spot on in terms of the factual basis, which is why we brought these great historians uh, to the topic and then kind of plant the seeds for, for practitioners and other folks and, and just general readers. We're hoping you know, that this is the kind of book that, people can sample. So a lot of the chapters are brief. They're like 6,000 words. You know, you could read it mm -hmm. before bedtime. Some of them are really engaging and accessible as well. Um, so, you know, anyway, that, that's, that's a few ruminations on the subject. Yeah. Well, and, and actually this, this is really good because you mentioned the, uh, you mentioned that uh, Betsy Bradley may, uh, you got people thinking about a topic they didn't come to the conference to think about. I am curious when you gathered these people together, or as many of them as who ended up contributing in 2016, what did they argue about? Um, you know, were there were there points of disagreement or point or or what what points sort of emerged as connections between? Because you know there are papers and for for people who you, I, of course you should all go out and get this book, but you know there are essays ranging from right the the grand strategy of the Confederacy to the question of of. Uh, of the of PEPFAR to reproductive politics to you know Chris your essay on Wilson and W B Du Bois or um, Andrew I have to say as a uh, as somebody who we use the makers of modern strategy right your discussion about Edward Mead Earl the original uh, you know spiritus rector of the makers of modern strategy right? there's a little something in here for everybody but as yeah, somebody who's tried to deal with putting together a conference volume right now um, when you know it's beautiful when you get lots of different people with lots of different topics the hard part is is how do you give it any kind of coherence and so. I'm curious when you brought these people together, you know, what, what kinds of points of touching uh, and inflection did you have between participants? Do you remember any particular moments? 
Chris might have a different memory than mine, but I, I don't remember so many points of contention between contributors, mm-hmm. but everyone had that question that you just mentioned, Ron, about coherence. It's like yeah. they were there, they, you know, we asked them to present on their thing, they did their thing, and then they would turn to us in the breaks and say, you know, wow, good luck making a book out of this. I mean, <laughs> you know, so it's not that people, we didn't have someone, you know, we didn't have someone, if they would present, if Laura Briggs would present on um, adoption, international adoption and reproductive politics, you know, the, the, the people who are more used to the traditional, in inverted commas, Sure. so-called traditional grant strategy wouldn't stand up and say that's not gs what are you talking about you know but it was more a sense of there are just we're going off in so many where we could go off in so many different directions how are you going to bring how are you going to bring coherence to this and uh that i think was the big was the biggest challenge we had and that's what we had first and foremost in our mind when we were putting the structure i mean we went through so many structures of the book didn't we chris like so many mm-hmm. you know chapter yeah, could yeah. go here and then mixing and matching chapters and that kind of thing and who knows if we got you know if we came up with the right formula in the end and then doing the intro was just really really difficult because you know like i said earlier in the in this podcast we we don't want to say you know previous thinking on grant strategy is is wrong mm-hmm. um and thinking about grants about the military aspects of grant strategy is wrong of course that's that's still at the very heart it's at the core of the study of grant strategy, but we just wanted to add to it. And there are so many, after we've published the book and people have said this to us, including some of the contributors, there are so many other things that we could have added mm-hmm. um, that we didn't add. Uh, and there are some, uh, there are a couple of, you know, topics that if we were to do a second edition or a new edition of this, we would add to them. So it could, it could still, even though it, we, we, it's very capacious, it could be even more capacious, I think. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I, so I think I have a couple of thoughts here, and this also gets at questions that I think the audience may be interested in. You know, so at some point, grand strategy becomes so capacious, so elastic, there's nothing there anymore. Mm-hmm. It, it encompasses everything, right? And so that was one of the questions that our contributors, you know, uh, were thinking about, and we've been thinking about for quite a while, especially in, in, in revising our, our introduction and giving talks about the book as well. So, you know, what are the limits? Um, what, you know, when should we just talk about strategies uh, is a piece of the puzzle. We didn't really want to police that boundary too much, as Andrew was saying. So we didn't want to come down and say, this is the only definition. We wanted to start conversations by broadening it, you know, the the concept and, and term. Um, you know, another tension that I think, I think we did have a little bit was what became the section of the book that we call recasting central figures. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Andrew and I are invested in thinking about some of the iconic figures like a George Kennan type, you know, like, you know, um, in keeping with his chapter on Edward Mead Earl, um, but also putting them in a new context or at least trying to see them in slightly different, a slightly different light. And so, you know, we had um, David Greenberg uh, wrote the chapter on Kennan, and it was, it's basically based on his diaries uh, and comes from some essays that, that David's written about, you know, the misanthropy um, of Kennan and, and kind of how his prejudices really deeply informed containment. Uh, so understanding the person, uh, understanding their core assumptions. That's what I was getting at before yeah. about strategy. You know, right. if you look at strategy, if you look at the worldviews and assumptions of the individuals making it in the groups, it, it gets you somewhere, right? There are real payoffs there. Yeah. So, you know, that was, but how much? So that's another piece of the puzzle. And this, this gets to other fields and disciplinary ways of thinking, but are just human ones, right? So um, how much should we care about the intent of a policymaker versus the outcomes or the policies that they make? How about um, policies that don't pay off? 
right? Can those be grand strategies? Uh, this is something that Hal Brands talks about in his chapter on, uh, you know, sort of debunking the fallacies. It, a grand strategy doesn't have to succeed. A grand strategy right. doesn't have to, you know, uh, pay off. A, a grand strategy may defy the some of the intents of those who structured and built it. Right. Um, that doesn't make it less of a grand strategy necessarily. Now, we could quibble and have some interesting debates about examples. But um, so but that was some of the stuff that was some of the meat that we were debating at the conference. I could totally see that. Yeah, well, I can totally see that. I mean, David Greenberg's piece on Kennan is, you know, for anybody who's interested in in foreign policy, it's delicious because he does, you know, Kennan. For better or for worse, right? Kennan was so full of himself that he thought all of his thoughts were worth keeping. And so now we can actually see what they were. And not all of them are, they don't all make George Kennan look good. But I, I've heard a, a, a scholar at a different um, a conference, very smart guy, Vlad Zubak, uh, uh, has said it on more than one occasion that we tend to overrate George Kennan as historians and scholars overrate George Kennan because we think of, because he's basically our. Mary Sue. He's our hero, right? He's a historian who got to make policy. And so therefore we think he must be really important and because he wrote everything down. And so that gets to this idea about strategies that are written down, right? We say, well, there's a strategy. He said it was a strategy and it's a strategy. But one of the interesting things about the book is how you show the places where, you know, it's, it's, it's our, our sort of historical examination uncovers the strategic contours. Um, I do think an, uh, an essay collection on you know, strategies that failed. Like I think, for example, right, a, a uh, you know, Bud McFarlane thought he was pulling a Henry Kissinger by opening to Iran in 1985-86, right, which leads to Iran-Contra, right? McFarlane had worked for Kissinger. He thought this was that he's doing the same thing. But you know, we don't talk about Bud McFarlane in the uh, heroic terms that we talk about Henry Kissinger. Yeah, for a variety of reasons. But so this gets to a question for all of you, uh, for both of you as uh, both for this book, but also as scholars of American foreign policy. So much of the discussion about foreign policy is shaped by presidential administrations. And basically every president gets elected saying that he or she is going to do things differently than the previous president. Um, and then whether they do or not becomes a big topic. How should we understand the interplay between the electoral politics, right, the, and the exigencies of electoral politics, where you're not allowed to say that your predecessor was doing a great job because otherwise, why would anybody vote for you? How do we understand the the relationship between uh, democratic politics and developing strategies for uh, for a democratic society? In other words, right? Do we have to rely on the some kind of continuity? Because you have an essay, "The Blob and the Mob" by Beverly Gage, which talks about this mm -hmm. issue of politics and society. And we ha we've had so much talk about the the pluses and minuses of having an establishment or a deep state that that guarantees continuity. Um, but how should but but then people also complain they don't you know the, the, it's not a good idea for a country to make 180 degree turns every four years or eight years. So how should we think about the relationship between democratic politics and developing consistent, rational grand strategies, if such there be? Uh, that's for both of you, but go ahead, Andrew. <laughs> I think just as a, as a sort of baseline, we should assume that grand strategy and domestic politics are not separable, okay. that they, they, they sort of influence one another and they feed on one another and they shape one another, especially domestic politics shaping grand strategy. There's no such thing as a foreign policy or a national security policy or a grand strategy that is free of domestic politics. And I think that's even true, you know, in the heyday of the establishment at the, during the liberal consensus, the height of containment that, 
Truman, Eisenhower, early Kennedy years, um, which you could make an argument as we have in this podcast that that was, you know, an example of a truly successful grand strategy. Maybe Kennan has been given too much credit. Maybe he's been overrated. But, you know, it's a it's a pretty tough case to argue against that containment wasn't successful. But even so, as some of our contributors in the book have written in our book, Rethinking American Grand Strategy, but also elsewhere, like Fred Logeval has written a lot about this elsewhere, even in those kinds of eras, domestic politics is hugely important. And so we should always, it doesn't mean that it's always the most important factor, um, but it should always be there in our uh, in our mindset. And my chapter on Edward Mead Earl makes this point as well, that he was, you know, he's this incredibly brilliant thinker and he rethought concepts like, or invented, helped invent concepts like national security and grand strategy because Americans didn't really use those terms, let alone the ideas that are embedded in those terms before that. Um, and, you know, you would think that that Earl was just sort of just thinking of the world and just thinking in strategic terms, but he was very much shaped by domestic politics. He was very much shaped by the need to He's in the minority in the late 1930s or early 1940s where he wants the U.S. to take a greater role in the world crisis. He wants to convince his fellow Americans, and especially the Roosevelt administration, to take a greater role in the world crisis. So how does he do that? That's part of what's driving grand strategy and national security for Edward Meadorl. And then from there, it it becomes this canonical academic theory. So I think from there, just from that baseline assumption that domestic politics matters, um, and you can see that, of course. I mean, every day, just what's unfolding in Afghanistan is, of course, something that's, you know, is, is about the war on terror and is about the war in Afghanistan and the war in Iraq. But that's also about American domestic politics um, and the domestic politics of, of lots of other countries. So as, as long as we recognize that very basic insight, then from there, I think we can we can we can do a lot. Yeah, I, I'm very much in agreement there as well. You know, I think um, so. One of the terms that I use uh, often, uh, it's unwieldy, and I don't know if everyone likes it. So let's see what the listeners think. But uh, is intermestic that, um, mm. yeah, uh, essential <laughs> intersection of the international and domestic. Um, mm. And and in grand strategies, we've got a chapter, for instance, on immigration, which I think is an archetypal uh, example yeah. of that. It's it's about border making and border crossing. It's about who and what counts as a citizen. Uh, and, and then all the secondary and tertiary elements of that, we're th- seeing them play out in real time right now. Refugees, humanitarian aid, um, you know, the politicization of borders, uh, the, you know, in a pandemic, um, the, the othering of other people and peoples and groups, right? The China flu, the Wuhan flu, the Spanish flu, right? The, the or COVID in the case of the former two, um, that sort of thing. Uh, so, you know, absolutely, I think Andrew's right. Foreign and domestic policy are inherently interconnected, and the historical record suggests that, you know, almost always. In terms of grand strategy, I wonder, maybe I have a slightly different view. Um, you know, if, if the grand, some of the biggest, grandest strategies are multi-generational, multi-administration, um, um, certainly you need a firm foundation to get that, say, through Congress or to pass some of the legislation. Um, but, you know, in the broadest sense of what a grand strategy hopes to achieve, and even the ones outside of, of formal state structures, but around your question is about presidential administrations and, and U.S. foreign policy, uh, but but particularly the ones in informal state structures and government and U.S. government, you know, I, I wonder, you know, how much the domestic foundations of grand strategy are necessary since you're projecting so far off. And I, I, I would posit that uh, kind of the stability of American democratic politics, though it's been shaken since at least 
you know, January 6th, right? We, we see there's some fundamental instability that many of us didn't fully appreciate before. Um, but the fu- stability over time has been the hallmark uh, of American foreign policymaking and grand strategies. And so you could assume that future administrations would buy into some of a grand strategy, so like containment, for instance. Uh, but you could also think a little bit about, say, um, American empire, right? Just because Republican administrations like McKinley and and Roosevelt were pursuing, you know, annexations abroad, and then the U.S. doesn't formally annex new territories, you do see the Jones Act and things going through Congress in 1917, and you see, you know, a, 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 a give and take up through the 20s and 30s, uh, but the U.S. continues to administer those places, right? So it's, if you're thinking in the very presentist terms about, you know, the U.S.'s longest war and, and occupation in Afghanistan, you know, you can see a multi-generational, multi-administration set of, of policies there at the end of the 19th and early 20th century that, that are, are comparable across administrations, including some that were more, you know, nominally anti-imperialist, for instance. So, you know, it could be that... Um, there's a grounding in domestic politics. I wouldn't want to say they're they're fully separable. I agree with Andrew there. But for big, sweeping, grand strategies that are so far off on the horizon towards towards completion and so aspirational in the way that Paul Kennedy or John Lewis Gaddis would define it, that um, that maybe there's a little less of a need for a kind of consensus or or very firm footing in domestic policy. I don't know. What do you think, Ron? Well, I this is this is a, exactly the kind of conversation that uh, that 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 this book suggests, right? Because I do think that you can't make policy if you don't win elections. Um, and but but you can't make policy simply built around winning elections. And that is a that's a fundamental uh, challenge. And I think about the the idea that if grand strategy is supposed to be thinking ahead, right, one of the biggest problems is how do we square uh, the need for longer term planning with the realities of short term crises? And, you know, to use another quote that we, we throw around a lot at the War College, right, that uh, President Eisenhower said, right, that, uh, that plans are useless, but planning is essential. So in other words, to, to think about this, that, you know, we don't, you know, I don't know if you can have a grand strategy that you're going to stamp in gold and you're going to say, you know, grand strategy, um, but that you can, uh, but you need to at least be thinking about what's this all supposed to add up to, that pure ad hocism is not a good idea. Um, and I guess the challenge going forward will be how will this administration or future administrations uh, deal with a different world, which will require new, broader ideas. And if they do that, and if we analyze it, I hope that people will build on rethinking American grand strategy, edited by Elizabeth Borgward, Chris McKnight Nichols, and Andrew Preston. Guys, this has been a this has been a terrific conversation, um, and I want to thank you both for being here. And I want to encourage our audience if they find this topic and this discussion to be interesting that they should seek out a copy of Rethinking American Grand Strategy. But for today, thanks, Chris Nichols. Thanks, Andrew Preston, for joining us here on a better piece. Thanks so much for having us, Ron. Yeah. Great to be on with you. It's been it's been a lot of fun, and thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and all of our programs. Send us suggestions for future programs. Please subscribe to A Better Peace on your podcatcher of choice. And after you have subscribed, because why wouldn't you subscribe to A Better Peace? Please rate and review this podcast because that's how more people can hear about us so that we can continue to grow this community for conversations like this one. This conversation is over, but we look forward to welcoming you again. Until next time, from the war room. I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. 
The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.